Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm excited for our conversation this week because we're going to do a deep dive on the climate crisis. I can't imagine a more important subject to talk about, and I can't imagine a better guest. My colleague, Kathy Castor from Florida, from Tampa Bay, Florida, who not only is a very senior and important member of the Energy and Commerce Committee, which has jurisdiction over everything we can think of, uh, but happens to chair the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, and I'm very honored to serve on that Select Committee with her. Welcome to the podcast, Kathy. Well, thanks, Jared, and uh, thank goodness that you are a member of the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. We have a lot of work to do, and you have brought your passion and expertise to the topic, and um, we have an exciting few months ahead of us. We do, and we've been busy for the last uh, almost 12 months now, haven't we? We, in fact, it's been about nine to ten months, uh, and have had a successful 2019 on climate action here in the House of Representatives. But it's nowhere near what we need to be doing, and that's what we have in our sights for 2020. Well, I'm going to ask you to walk us through some of the things that the committee has done over the past year. But before we do that, I want everyone to know. Um, the listeners of this podcast know that I'm pretty deep green, and I've got a long history on these environmental issues. Uh, what I want to make sure they also know is that Kathy Castor is the real deal when it comes to environmental uh, leadership and this climate issue in particular. I have uh, spent a lot of time with her, traveled with her. Uh, I can uh, bring up any level of technical subjects, and she's probably going to know more about it than I do. She impresses me at every turn. Uh, Kathy, where did you get your uh, handle on these issues and your passion for doing something on climate change? Well, I love my home state of Florida, and I grew up uh, horseback riding uh, in the natural places around my community in the Tampa Bay area and on the beach, the beautiful beaches of uh, southwest Florida, where the water's a little warmer than it you is. You can actually in, swim in the water? Yes, we do. Wow. Um, but uh, what Our I've, beaches are just pretty to look at. They are, are fantastic. <laughs> I, as you know, I love the Bay Area. I have a daughter who uh, was a cow bear, so yeah. I, I love your part of the world as well. Uh, but out of, uh, out of law school, I went to work for the state of Florida enforcing environmental laws and growth management laws, fighting for protection of, of endangered species like the key deer in the Florida Keys, and uh, to make sure that, that the growth in my home state didn't overwhelm our natural places. And the, because our economy is directly tied to our environmental resources, mm -hmm. clean beaches and clean water. Uh, has, and that's where uh, I get my motivation. Well, that's a great place to get it. And, and has represented, representing a vulnerable coastal community kind of helped you step out on this issue and, and help your constituents You uh, know it has. The, the Tampa Bay area is the most vulnerable in the entire country to storm surge because uh, the way we've developed over time, on a shallow bay, the way those hurricanes come up uh, through the Gulf of Mexico, if we were to have the big one hit, yeah. it would wipe out the, the folks. That surge that I, goes all the way in. It does. And in fact, you may remember a, a 
couple of years ago, that monster Hurricane Irma that was a little bit different because it was so large. It covered the entire state, and I had to pack up all of my belongings, photo albums, and and all of everything that we held dear, board up our home. We drove all of our, our you know, the jewelry and photo albums to the top of a parking garage uh, a few miles away. And we were very fortunate. We were able to get out of the way, but there are too many people out there now that just cannot get out of the way of, of the climate crisis. Yeah, so let's talk about the select committee because uh, as soon as we won back the majority in this Congress, there was a huge amount of conversation uh, about a select committee, which is, is something Speaker Pelosi had done back when she was previously the speaker, uh, leading up to the introduction of the Waxman-Markey climate bill, which to this day is kind of the high watermark of congressional action on climate change. It wasn't successful, but it was uh, an outgrowth of a select committee created under her prior tenure as speaker. And so there was an expectation, and I think a desire on her part, uh, to follow that same model, this time hopefully to, uh, to get a little further uh, toward the finish line. Uh, let's talk about how this select committee that you chair came to be, and uh, I have a few follow-up questions on that as well. Well, the, the, uh, thank goodness the Democrats won the House of Representatives because of the damage coming out of the Trump administration and the United States Senate, at least in the House. Now we can prevent uh, significant environmental damage and rollbacks of our important environmental protections. But that what that's not enough, and and certainly climate has been the speaker's flagship issue. But now she has reinforcements. She has backup. She has this fantastic class of new members, uh, bolstered by the wisdom and experience of uh, longer serving Democrats and. This is the challenge of our time, and that is the motivation for uh, creating the select committee. We're united here in the House on the Democratic side that we've got to take bold action, and that's what the select committee is has been tasked with doing. There was a little bit of controversy over uh, some really, I think, well-meaning advocacy around the Green New Deal that was uh, demanding a select committee that actually have the title, the Green New Deal Select Committee, and not include anyone who had ever gotten any direct or indirect support politically from the fossil fuel industry. Um, I guess by definition that would mean it could only be Democrats and only a very few Democrats because I don't know a single Republican that doesn't uh, feed from that trough. But uh, talk about um, some, of the, uh, some of the tension, I guess, that had to be navigated and where you think we stand relative to um, the Green New Deal advocates. Well, the Green New Deal, thank goodness that they are have set their sights high because we're not going to be able to accomplish anything in the halls of Congress unless we have the passion and determination uh, from young people but from people all across this country because, let's face it, the fossil fuel industry has outsized power here in, in Congress and the only way you overcome that is through people power. and. Uh, I think the folks, uh, anyone who cares about this planet and future generations, they're going, uh, they're looking to us, whether you're, it's Green New Deal or, or Climate Action Now or uh, whatever the labels are, we've got to get past that and get down to business. Yeah. Uh, is it fair to say that you think um, this younger generation, these communities of color that have come into this growing coalition for climate leadership, um, that, that we sort of owe them um, uh, a work product that's worthy of 
the trust that we've been handed on this select committee. I do, and it has to be based on the science. Yeah. There's never been uh, more consensus uh, about what has to be done, so now it's time for action. I, at least we're past a, the debate. Not always. Yeah. We, we can talk about some of our GOP colleagues who still deny, and, and gosh, the denier-in-chiefs right down Pennsylvania Avenue, but at least our, our debates often aren't, is it is cl the climate changing or not? It's really I do want to ask you about that piece of it, because that's one of the fault lines here that we're, that we're uh, navigating. Um, when you put a select committee together, you have to include Republicans. That's just the way it works in this institution. And what are your thoughts about uh, the way that has gone? We have Republican colleagues on this select committee. They were not chosen by you or by our speaker, but by Republican leadership. And uh, we have spent the last nine or 10 months you know, trying to find some common ground. Uh, what's your sense? I'm, it's tough, Jared. I mean, while there, we don't go on and on in debating on whether or not the climate is changing, we're, we're not having a lot of constructive dialogue on climate solutions. They are still so tied to the dirty energy policies of the past and, and, and polluters. And they're, while they like to bring up, oh, we can innovate our way out of it, it doesn't, that doesn't seem to include renewable energy, wind energy, solar yeah. power, the clean energy, energy efficiency. Um, I'm finding a lot of code words in, in their messaging. They have evolved to the degree that they know they can't just outright deny climate change. Um, but in the same breath as they acknowledge it, they, they seem to diminish it and confuse it by saying the climate has always been changing, yes. uh, which is sort of missing the whole point of anthropogenic climate change. And then when they talk about innovation, invariably what they really mean, if you follow it up, is more fossil fuel extraction and burning. Uh, which is not what the science tells us we have to do. Um, is there any hope for finding some Republicans who can actually join us on this? Wouldn't it be great to have some bipartisan effort here? I'm hopeful, but you know the the GOP leadership here in the House that had an opportunity to appoint some more forward-thinking members of the Republican conference to the select committee. They chose not to. They they chose to kind of load up on. On folks uh, from uh, from parts of the country that are really f tied to fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, so, but where I find the hope is the fact that uh, no matter what your political affiliation is in the general public, they understand the threats and the rising cost of the changing climate, and it it's just a matter of time before they are going to be voting with us. Yeah. The, the problem is we don't have much time. There are a couple of Republicans that uh, I think would join us in, in some of the more essential actions we have to take on climate change. Mike Fitzpatrick and, and Rooney from your Francis state. Rooney. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so to, in a sense, it's disappointing that they uh, weren't put on this committee. Were you around uh, during Waxman, Markey? You I were. was, yeah. yes. There were a bunch of Republicans that voted for Waxman Markey. A whole bunch, you yeah. bet. And and there were eight Republicans, and actually there were a number of Democrats who opposed the bill. So yeah. it was um, it it was uh, a much more collaborative effort. But gosh, if we had been able to to pass uh, aces 
uh, the American Clean Energy and Security Act, Waxman-Markey, we would be in a whole lot yeah. better shape today. So that's, we've lost time, uh, but but we're going to get back on track here. And we've made some progress this session. Well, and I, I want to move on to some other things, but before we completely leave the subject of our Republican colleagues and our efforts to work with them, uh, I think people need to understand it's not that we don't like them. It's not that we don't um, respect them. Uh, our, our deliberations have been civil and in many cases, you know, very substantive. And we've identified kernels of things we might be able to do together. Um, but, but talk about you know, the, the barrier to just getting them into the true problem-solving mode on this subject and well, how that's changed from a decade ago when we were able to do it with several of them. Yeah, the, you know, the dirty uh, energy interests are, are trying to hold on uh, for everything, with everything they have, but uh, coal plants are retiring every day. It's not uh, financially feasible to, to get into the coal business right now. And uh, so those members continue to, to try to stand up for that. Yeah. that We've fading, got a West Virginia colleague on the, on the committee. That fading industry. Uh, it's a little tougher when we're talking about frack gas because mm -hmm. now, unfortunately, a couple of years ago, the Congress authorized uh, frack gas exports and they have been able to do that. We once saw frack gas as a transition fuel, but now it's, uh, it's pr very problematic because it has provided some economic lifeblood to areas of the country that were uh, kind of stagnating on how they would create jobs. But uh, I see that as a, there are a lot of um, uh, very well-funded businesses that are holding on with all they have. And the, one of the problems is that they don't have to bear the cost of their extraction and dirty fuel production. Yeah. They kind of, they say, okay, general public, uh, you folks in Florida who are experiencing more intense storms, uh, higher property taxes, flood insurance, you bear the cost right. of our industry. We, they, the fossil fuel industry has had a longstanding social license to externalize all of that onto the general public. Yeah, and there's, I think the public, they're waking up to it. I hope so. Well, let me ask you about a trip we took recently together because in addition to serving on the select committee together, we both joined Speaker Pelosi on a congressional delegation to the COP25 climate conference in Madrid a little over, maybe right at about a month ago. Um, tell us uh, your impressions of that trip and, and the takeaways. It was uh, a very impactful experience. My main takeaway um, was that American leadership, uh, people, countries around the world are hungry for America's leadership. And it was very important for us to be there. And uh, Speaker Pelosi is a star. Yeah. It, just walking through the pavilions with her, uh, she's now an international superstar. And I think she symbolizes uh, hope. And um, she is uh, in person the uh, one who is viewed as standing up to President Trump and all of his uh, misguided policies and, and untruths. And they, they, people are hungry for that, that counterweight. I felt like we were walking around that conference with the person who by default is the leader of the free world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, she, she is a force of nature yeah. herself. But I thought, 
I think it was very meaningful that, that we were there at the opening of the conference and uh, made that statement at the, um, the opening where we were focused on vulnerable nations and vulnerable communities yeah. to say that here we are, the United States of America, the most powerful country in the world, but we understand we have a responsibility to uh, communities across the globe to take climate action. Well, I like the way you put that because a huge percentage of the CO2 that is accumulated in the atmosphere as a result of the century of fossil fuel burning is ours. So we can talk about the fact that China is now a bigger emitter or that we're now you know, beginning to, to at least nominally bring some of our emissions down, uh, but we're a huge part of the problem. Yeah, it was also very meaningful for us to convene uh, people of faith and environmental justice leaders from, from our country who were in attendance in Madrid and to talk about them, talk, talk to them about the policies we're crafting for our climate action plan for the Congress. Everybody uh, reads and hears the things Nancy Pelosi says publicly, so we don't need to, to uh, talk about that in, in terms of describing her climate bona fides. But we had a chance to be with her you know, very privately. Uh, including in meetings with the Secretary General of the United Nations, with heads of state, uh, with uh, our own State Department climate negotiators behind closed doors before they went into the conference trying to carry out these awkward orders they have from the Trump administration. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on uh, sharing with folks uh, just how authentic Nancy Pelosi is in her commitment, because I was hearing Nancy Pelosi behind closed doors kind of finish my thoughts for me in terms of taking to task our negotiators on shilling for the fossil fuel industry. I mean, I, I'm just really impressed with what I saw outside of the public eye. Yeah, she's a unique leader with unique gifts. Uh, I think part of that stems from her faith. Uh, people know that she is a very faithful person and often talks about the climate crisis in terms of the moral obligation that we have to to future generations. She is whip smart. Uh, she understands, uh, she has a sense of empathy that is matched with political know-how that comes with years of experience, being a good listener, listening to people with all sorts of opinions. I saw it in action earlier today where we convened a group uh, that are interested in climate action that ran the gamut from farmers to insurers to folks who are interested in national mm -hmm. security to faith leaders to environmental organizations, uh, labor, environmental justice. I mean, it's it, she, she has a gift. Yeah, I think people need to really appreciate how important this issue is to her. Uh, and we saw it up close. Uh, a, a quick uh, note about the work of the committee so far. I, I think the top line numbers are something like 100 hearings and meetings, but uh, on a very shoestring budget uh, and with a wonderful but small staff, uh, you have been really busy and covering a lot of ground. Yes, and we right now we're hammering out the recommendations for the Congress that will run the gamut. Uh, every. Uh, every sector of the economy, from energy to agriculture to transportation to, to financial. Uh, so uh, thank you for mentioning our outstanding professional staff led, led by Anna Unruh-Cohen. Who's in the room sitting quietly as we record this podcast. <laughs> She's outstanding, and they, they're all fantastic. But we, we understand that we have uh, 
quite a charge ahead of us. So we're one of the things we did is we asked for, besides the hearings and field hearings and visits to across uh, the country, we've had uh, numerous meetings with stakeholders, but we put out on the street a request for information. You know, we received thousands of responses. So we are synthesizing those recommendations now to help turn them into our climate action plan that's due out in March. Yeah, so uh, why don't you tell us where this is all gonna, the, the, the great crescendo, the culmination of all of this, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, what you think has changed from the last time you went through this exercise with Waxman Markey a decade ago. But, yeah. but what can we expect as I the final product? I was so much product? younger then, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you still look pretty young. Oh. But, uh, well, um, you know, that was 10 years ago, and my uh, reflection on that is we were so focused on the energy sector itself, and, yeah. and truly that is where we, we can achieve uh, massive greenhouse gas uh, pollution reductions. But now the, the climate solutions are so much broader, and the thinking is so much broader, and it has to involve agriculture. It must involve... Uh, our public lands. It has to involve the cars we drive, but not just the cars we drive, the, the, um, the Department of Defense, the buildings that we uh, live in and we build for the future. It's a much more holistic uh, climate strategy than it was back then. Uh, another important piece is the resilience piece. Mm -hmm. How we provide tools to uh, local communities to adapt to the changing climate. Now the most important thing we can do is reduce carbon in the atmosphere, but even if we didn't do that today, we would still have to make changes at home on how we, um, on the way we build and to reinforce certain, certain communities, protect our water supplies, and you know all too well yep. uh, fire management and forestry. Yeah. Amen. So what will this report be? Is it just something that's going to go into a binder and sit on a shelf? What can people expect? No. Uh, this is going to be a climate action plan for, for the Congress that will touch, uh, touch everyone. And uh, our direction is to be bold, to be transformative, to be creative. So we're hammering out those policy proposals now. And then they, this is a report that then goes to congressional committees, every committee in the Congress, where they then will get to work drafting legislation. And it's not something that, that can wait for the next president to be elected. It has to be, uh, we have to put together a package of bills that uh, we bring to the floor of the Congress and get passed and we take them over to the US Senate and I know that looks daunting because the Grim Reaper and Mitch McConnell is there stopping just about everything but uh, we're gonna you can't be daunted by this you have to you have to keep at it and and keep working and build those coalitions and I hope uh, folks out there listening to your podcast can help us well let me um, close this subject uh, with a big question um, it seems to me that, uh, you, you confirm this or not, but a decade ago, we were still fighting to get people to um, acknowledge that climate change was actually a thing. Um, there was deep denial. It was pretty widespread, uh, not just in politics, but in the general public, a lot of ignorance. And it seems to me that uh, fast forward to today, we're now at a point where uh, 
increasingly we know we've been diagnosed with this terrible disease, but those who denied it for so long now want to go straight to um, the fact that we, you know, it's just palliative care for the planet and hospice. Uh, we'll just keep smoking right to our deathbed. Um, there's some space in between those two uh, ends of the continuum where we, where we can still solve problems. Um, can you offer any hope that there's still some problem solving, that we can still fight this disease uh, rather than just uh, go right to palliative care for the planet? There is. There is hope. <laughs> of, and if you just look at some of the things we were able to accomplish with Trump in the White House and a GOP-controlled Senate, we've made uh, this year uh, robust investments in clean energy research. We boosted EPA's. Uh, budget. We were able to build into the Department of Defense more direction for them uh, on resiliency, but also on clean energy. But we're just getting started. And uh, so we're able to accomplish some things. But really to meet the science and meet the challenge ahead, we need to do so much more. And I'm, I'm grateful, Jared, that you are a part of it. You're, you're smart. You're, you know how these things are working in California, what's worked and what hasn't worked in California. And now bringing all of your expertise and wisdom to bear, it's, you're going to make this report and the action of the Congress uh, eventually stronger. We'll be better for it. Well, thank you, Chairwoman Castor, great climate champion, great colleague and friend. I really appreciate you being part of this conversation. Thank you so much. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman. <laughs>